Dance Talk Radio, brought to you by PhiladelphiaDance.org, your one-stop spot for everything dance in Philly. I am your host, Charles Tyson Jr., and today I am pleased and delighted to have our guest, Madhu Bora. She is the uh, director of the Satria Dance Company. Hi, Madhu. Hi, Charles. <laughs> it's so good to see you. Oh my goodness. So good to see you and to um, be part of this conversation. And I'm so grateful for you uh, and to you for making space for Hatria. And um, just wanted to name that, you know, one of the reasons Hatria is alive and thriving in Philadelphia or in North America is because of you. Uh, you gave us, you know, <laughs> the first opportunity and you've been such a wonderful cheerleader throughout um our journey as you know you know we went through the growing pains and like where we are right now like we knew that we always you always had our back so deeply appreciative and super well, grateful for you literally my pleasure uh, <laughs> i remember um, when I was, when your application for the Etc. performance series came across my desk and I saw traditional Indian dance, first woman to perform in the States. That's all I needed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we want this. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> and now look at you. Oh, so, and remember, I, I think I had some sort of a record. I think it was between me and, was it Jay? No, who was it? Who, uh, we did the, I, I think we were second, the second um, company that presented their, like, successively for, like, three years oh, or something oh, like oh, that. Oh, was oh, crazy, oh. right? Yes, it was you guys. We had guys the most number of shows. And, uh, and Lauren Williams. Lauren Williams, Lauren yes. Lauren had the, had the, Lauren. the record, yes. Yes, yes. Ren yes, has the record. Place. Yes. <laughs> and you were a close second by, like, maybe one. Close second. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At most no, it was just two. Such, yeah. Well, it was such a nurturing space. I mean, that's, you know we need more of those spaces, right? Um, it I just agree. felt safe. It was such a safe space to, to, you know, debut any new work, to get the feedback and love, to know that even if we faltered, like it was okay, right? Uh, I mean, you need, you need that support in, in those initial years. And, um, you know, so thankful to you that, and, and how fortunate we were that, you know, et cetera, existed then when we started, so... It was definitely a labor of love. And you have, you guys have grown. You've gotten Pew Fellowship grants and Leeway grants, and you've been all over. You had a billboard with your face on it. <laughs> I was so proud of you. Oh. So um, tell our audience who might not know. I've been saying Satria. You said Hatria. Hatria. Um, and we write it as Satria. Um, and, um, you know, the, the way to pronounce it in the Assamese way is, is Hatria. The sa is silent. I've been saying That's it wrong Hatria. this whole time. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Satria is fine too. I mean, it's a Satria. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, uh, tell us, uh, tell us what is Hatria? Wow, where do I start? Um, so, so Hotria is is, I think, to describe it uh, more rightfully, it is a way of life, mm. um, and an art form too. It comes from a marginalized community of farming monks on a remote island in northeast India. Mm. Um, it's a ritualistic oral tradition which has survived, you know, you name it, political persecution oppressive institutions um, and while imparting spirituality and religious um, narratives and fostering and building community and identity uh, for the people of Assam Beautiful. Um, or, you know, for more than 500 years. Right. So unlike most other dance forms, there are eight Indian classical, classical within right. quotes, dance forms. Um, unlike the other, um, you know, classical dance forms, it has never had any wealthy patrons. And for centuries, um, the storytelling tradition 
actually was confined within the four walls of the monasteries where it was nourished and nurtured by multi-generational celibate monks. And it's only in the past 22 years uh, that the form has become widely accessible to women. So right now it lives both on the proscenium space mm-hmm. and your modern day studios, uh, but it also continues to still very much exist as a spiritual offering, ritualistic offering in the monasteries. And how were you able to, as a woman, be able to bring it to bring it to fruition in the States? Like just, I want to and this needs to happen? Or was there like some kind of process? So it's it's been a long journey. Um, you know, like I said, because um, of the nature of, of, of the art form itself, you know, it survived in the monasteries. So it was not accessible. Um, and also, I think um, little girls growing up in Assam at that time did not really seek out Hatria hmm. because there was no platform to practice it, right? Um, if you were a Bharatanatyam dancer or a Kathak dancer or Odissi dancer, any of the other classical art forms, right. there were scholarships available to pursue it. Uh, there were platforms uh, and performance spaces that welcomed you to showcase your art. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was both ways. It, it was a matter of access because most of these monks were in the monastery and they were not, you know, they were not allowed to teach. There was no like, you know, spoken rule that you can't teach women. But like, yeah, it was kind of pretty much known that they were not interacting with women. And the few of them who left the order and settled outside would start, you know, would train, you know, uh, kids from the village um, or towns. But again, you know, that that momentum was not there. The desire for parents to enroll their um, children uh, for Hatria classes was not there because they didn't know what the outcome would be. Right. right? There was no tangible um, way of like making out like, okay, you know, okay, they can then pre- perform um, somewhere. It's a very colonizer's view, I guess, but you know, that's right. how it was. Um, <laughs> how can we commodify so, this? <laughs> I know, right? So, but I was, I was really, really fortunate because uh, when I was four years old, um, one of, the um a priest i would call it i don't know how to yeah i mean he was the priest monk uh of our village temple um saw me playing in my grandmother's yard and then decided that 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 year at the big festival i was going to play little krishna right so he approached my family and he said i'm going to teach her and I need her to play Krishna. And I was, of course, very elated. Right. <laughs> and before that, I had, I had, you know, danced with my, uh, my auntie uh, was an amazing folk dancer. Um, and two of my cousin aunties were also like performers. So I had got on stage with them just to look cute. I was three <laughs> years old. But I, you know, I was not afraid of this, of the stage. And I was like, yeah, I was really pumped up. So he started training me. Um, and then uh, it just so happened that the night of the performance. So my, my father is, uh, um, was a politician, a union organizer, um, and, and, you know, deeply oh, wow. engaged in Assamese uh, politi- politics. Um, so, so was my grandfather. He was a freedom fighter. But uh, what had happened was, uh, you know, this was a time when Assam was going through a lot of turmoil in terms of its political identity. And unfortunately, my father was had a lot of enemies, um, even in the village. So the night of the performance, you know, uh, a group of about 10, 15 men came and surrounded me and basically said, you cannot go up on stage. If you do, we'll shut down the festival. Oh, wow. So I was four years old and I didn't know what to do. I still have memory from from that night, right? And then, of course, I came home. I was not allowed to perform. And, um, you know, it it was my grandmother's kitchen and at her hearth, we were sitting, you know, the, the, we had those little uh, clay stoves, right? Mm-hmm. I still remember she, she, she put on a kettle, she made some tea uh, and she was consoling me and she said, you know what? Um, it's okay. Why are you wasting your tears? This is just a small 
venue space in the village temple, one day you'll be dancing on the world stage, Mm -hmm. right? And it is insane because (laughs) I, I then I kind of gave up you know, I was so traumatized from it. And then there were also like these life events that happened. So it took me away from dance. I did it on the side, like, you know, I would join these dance competitions where I taught myself and I would do these different things, but um, never really had a chance because we had to move a lot. You know, there were assassination attempts on my family as well as myself. So we never really stayed in one space. Like it was, we were moving a lot. And uh, so Hachia actually um, went away from me um, until I came to, I I had to leave uh, after, you know, this really horrible assassination attempt. My parents freaked out. And so I was moved to Delhi um, in North India. And that's where I got a chance to to dance in this uh, production where, you know, my teachers uh, encouraged me to audition and I had the amazing opportunity to work with one of the greatest legends of Kathak, Pandit Birju Maharajji um, and his team. Um, and it was a production called Ram Kavya. And hmm, okay. um, that kind of reconnected me to dance. So I started training in Kathak and that's what I was doing. But then a p- part of me always knew I wanted to go back to Hotria. Right. And this was in the 90s, right? And it was the access was still a problem. Then 1999, I came to the U.S. And 2000, Hatria, suddenly the Indian government woke up and hmm. proclaimed Hatria as one of the classical dances and included it into the pantheon of Indian dances. So then the floodgates open, all these resources. The monks also you know, wanted to teach, right? Everybody wanted to learn this art, the newest art form um, in the classical, um, you know, arena. So 2002, and I was working as a journalist here and still dancing. So I came here and joined a Kathak company in New York called Kathak Ensemble and Friends. Um, and it, it's led by uh, Janiki Patrick, who is an amazing, amazing guru, advisor, mentor for us. Um, and, you know, Janiki Didi actually, uh, how generous of her that, you know, she um, called me one day and she said, you know, like we would have these conversations and she said, you should follow your heart. Maybe you should go back to Hatria. So for mm. her to allow me to do that, right. right, to give me permission and encourage me. So 2002 was when I actually went back and reconnected and, uh, and with the art form, I went to the island, um, got in touch with the monks there and found my teacher. And um, 2008, when, you know, my son Ahan was born, was uh, it just gave me, gave me renewed purpose. I right. quit journalism and devoted my life to Hatria full time. So here we are now. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a journey. So it sounds like um, Hatria is born of an act of resistance, which makes sense because I know there's a, a bit of the the artivist in you and always has been, which is one of the things I appreciate. Um, one of my favorite moments was when you uh, were able to bring the monks to the States and and have the performances. We went to see you perform at the art museum, I believe it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was amazing. And then there was there there was the uh, the element of the the fabric that was an important aspect. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So you know, and I love the term artivist. I've heard it for the first time. I don't know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're I'll put right. I put it in my it's resume. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh my goodness, I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, Hotria itself. I think the art, it's an art of resistance, uh, but like more so now uh, because of what is happening um, in India in terms of, pan, of the pan-Indian movement and, you know, this really um, effort to erase histories um, mm. and, you know, erase um, indigenous uh, rights and cultures and languages and, and, you know, there's this like really nationalistic fervor, good uncle, that is happening right now. So 
uh, archiving. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so archiving documentation itself is an act of resistance, and and that's what I've been trying to do. Work. Uh, but with the monks, what happened was in two thousand. So two thousand two, I reconnected, you know, with the art farm and found my teacher. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I was there uh, on leeway grants. Um, uh, and by the way, like I just want to, you know, say that without leeway foundation. Um, Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, mm-hmm. um, you know, recent, you know, Bertol uh, also supported me. Um, and um, am I forgetting anyone? Well, Pew, of course. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you know, it wouldn't have been possible to do what I do. Um, and so the leeway, multiple leeway grants actually allowed me to um, go to the monastery and spend time documenting and studying, um, you know, for extensive period of um, time. And uh, so while during one of those visits, I think it was 2009 or 2010, um, you know, I was talking to my teacher and and they were prepping to go for a show in France, I believe, where, uh, or was it in England? No, it was in France, where they, um, you know, they identified a piece of a missing sacred textile. Um, that belonged um, to um, to the monastery, mm-hmm. um, not this particular monastery, but like you know to, to this to this uh, spiritual philosophy, right. um, because the creator of the dance form uh, was um, a social activist, social religious reformer, and you know he was just this amazingly gifted person who created the dance, created the music, created this philosophy, um, brought the community together, and also, you know, was an amazing puppeteer, mask maker, you know, visual artist. and, Come and on, multimedia. <laughs> right. And organized, you know, this, uh, he, he was commissioned by the king, to actually weave some of these uh, mythological stories from Krishna's life into pieces of cloth. And um, I think he took about 100 weavers and directed them on how to do this. Mm. So most of these, the, the, and they did a particular weaving technique called lampas. And like this particular style actually disappeared once the, that generation of weavers transitioned, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the cloth also the textile disappeared from India. Right. And they reappeared. Magically. Magically. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, in um, art museums all over, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in, in the Western Hemisphere. So somebody, like there was actually a British curator, uh, Rosemary Krill, who found one of these textiles in her collection. And it was misidentified as Tibetan silk. And she said, oh, this is the you know, Assamese Brindavani Vastra and based on where like the auction had happened, I mean, she also said like, oh, you know, part of this uh, tradition or, you know, similar textiles also exist exist, and there was like a line somewhere in the journal that like, you know, in Philadelphia and, you know, in, in France. And so um, the monks t- told me about this. So I started looking, you know, this was like the journalist in me. I was like, right. I have to find this thing. Right. Um, and, and at that time there was this, it's just the, this dream birthed where I was like, I had this vision. I was going to bring 10 monks and have this splendid show in New York mm-hmm. and Philadelphia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to, I was foolish. I was young. And I was like, I can make this happen. Okay, not knowing, right. you know, what a production it was going to be with visas and everything, right? And and funds to kind of make this happen. A lot of balls in so, the air, yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So we, um, we got talking. And then when they told me about this textile in France, so I started reading up more about it. And then, you know, then I saw a mention that it was like maybe there was a piece in Philadelphia Museum of Art. So it took a couple of years to actually locate the piece. Um, mm-hmm. It was in their storage. <laughs> and, right? Um, wow. Yeah. And, and I didn't know where I was looking. And that was partly, you know, um, I think it was the universe was not ready for it to happen. Um, 
And I kept going back to the museum trying to find this piece. Uh, and finally, you know, I think it was a Pew, Pew uh, grant that allowed the South Asian um, collection to digitize. Mm. And so one night while I was watching Law and Order, <laughs> I was going through the digital archive. And then I was like, oh, my God, this looks like the Brindabani textile. So I emailed them and I said, hey, I want to look at this. Because before that, I was just going and saying, do you have anything like this? And they're like, no, we don't know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> so now I had, you know, um, a number and and um, I, I, I just was like, this is in the catalog. And I was like, this is what I'm looking for. Can I, you know, please take a look at this? And I'm so-and-so. Um, I, I, you know, said I'm a Hotchia dancer. So they were like, okay. And, but the, the museum was under renovation. So they called me after three months. It was the longest wait of my life, right? <laughs> I I go in and they took out the box and as they were bringing out the textile, I was like, I started crying because I was like, oh my God, I noticed the letters that were there right. you know, from our script. Right. And I was like, they found it, you know? The universe <laughs> said, and now. <laughs> now, exactly, right? <laughs> so then I had this and then I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, how do I make this happen now? Because I, I knew it was, we were onto something really good. So um, I reached out to, well, I had, you know, friends at the Kunyang Lin Dance mm -hmm. um, uh, company and, and um, Ken, Kunyang's husband and partner. I love actually, Ken. And, oh, my God. <laughs> Ken's the best. So I was actually doing uh, Inhale there, right? Inhale series. Yes. Um, I was doing, I was performing there. And I think backstage, Ken came and talked to me. And I said, you know, Ken, this is, I found this and I think I want to do a production. And he was like, you need to reach out to Pio. So I, I, and I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so then, you know, talked to Pio and I said, this is the project. And of course I had no experience because I was like the small time artist then. Um, and, you know, I reached out to the Philadelphia Folklore Project, uh, who were also very encouraging and, you know, have supported my work over the years. And um, and the best thing that happened out of it was actually uh, connecting with Amy Smith and Headlong mm -hmm. Dance Theater. So Headlong came in as a partner and and um, um, Daniel Karika. I don't know if you know Daniel. Oh, Yeah. Uh, Oh my God! Like Probably we were have such her a on team. The show too, at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah. her show recently was so amazing. I bet she did her uh, solo. She debuted her solo burlesque work. Just like such a rock she is star. taking it in such an amazing direction. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Um, so Daniel became my partner in crime like literally you know daniel was like my shadow daniel daniel made everything happen i think it was daniel and prerna my dance partner because prerna handled the logistics in india uh we had to do everything from like the visas to mm -hmm. like getting social security done for the monks so that they could pay their taxes on the yeah. little income they made here so all of that right i mean yes the show we had to curate the show we had to figure out how to bring out the textile uh, without, like it was such a fragile piece of cloth so that it didn't disintegrate. Right. Um, you know, um, and then the space uh, and hiring everyone. Uh, but it was one of the most diverse crews. You know, we had Daniel managing everything. We had um, Lee Mumford, you know. Oh. You have an all-star team. Work. Oh my goodness! Work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, so then it became it, it. The monks came, and it was truly a pilgrimage. Truly a pilgrimage for them to, you know, reclaim a piece of their heritage, right? Mm. For the diaspora, um, you know, people traveled from. The farthest someone traveled was from France, um, and and then also from, you know, people traveled from Indiana, from from Michigan, uh, Milwaukee, you know, wow. to come and to come and um, see the show, and uh, we were sold out within the first two days when the tickets went live. It was right. it was insane. Well, literally, yeah. where else were you going to see that? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> get on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and there was pressure. You know, people, you know, 
the museum was actually in conversation saying like, do you want to add another show? And I was like, no, <laughs> this can only happen once. Right. This offering, you know, it's not something, it's not a performance. It was an offering. It was mm. that magical special moment and it can only happen once. You know, we can't do it two, three times. <laughs> so right. yeah. Uh, but like, you know, the monks were here for a month and a half and we, we ended up like, performing at the Library of Congress. We went to, at the World Music, um, in, World Music Institute? Festival. Festival. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> Symphony Space, you know. Mm. Uh, but that show that happened at the PMA, well, we were also at Drexel University. We had an amazing partnership um, at Drexel University and the monks in the residency there. Mm. Um, and... Um, um, you know, so we, and, and Delaware at the Queen. Um, so, but the show that happened at the PMA, you know, that we did not duplicate that anywhere else. It was, we, we basically um, choreographed two different performances, one for the PMA and one for the rest of the venues. Because neither one could be duplicated anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. I'm loving your journey. I'm loving it. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm loving you. it. I'm and you're part of it. You. You're part of it. I, <laughs> <guess>. <laughs> I don't take compliments very well. No. <laughs> but no, I, I'm so proud of you and what you're you're able to accomplish. And I feel like a lot of the resources available for artists like in terms of like folklore and history aligned so perfectly with what you do it was just the again the universe just worked out perfectly everything just came together in the way it was supposed to i love it i love it i love it yeah you know and like that also i think is is such a blessing that you know i i was in philadelphia when all of that happened um you know uh I mean, in the initial stages, right, it was you and it was also Deborah Kodish from the Philadelphia Folklore Project mm -hmm. who actually told me about the first, you know, I, I mean, she was the reason I got the first Leeway Grant because I was looking and trying to find out, like, you know, where, how do I find more spaces to present Hatria and make people aware of the art form? And I just cold called the Philadelphia Folklore Project and Deborah answered the phone and I was just introducing myself and told her who I was. And this was around like 1130 in the morning. Right. And and she goes, oh, wait, hold on. Um, do you, have you heard of Liwe Foundation? And she was like, you know, there's a uh, grant application that's due tomorrow, but I think you can do it. <laughs> so I'm going to hang up now. You work on this grant and see what happens. Right. And literally, like, I had less than 24 hours. <laughs> and I was like, hey. and I, I wrote it, and I that was my first grant, you know? Fabulous. Um, so, um, yeah, like, I, I mean, like like you said, I mean, that what is really amazing about Hatria is, is the intersectionality with all these different, um, you know, that's a, it, 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 it's a music tradition. It, it, it is a folklore tradition. It is... I say it rolling my eyes, classical tradition, you know, <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, but it's, it's also a form of resistance and, and um, you know, it, it lends itself in so many beautiful ways. And, and because of this versatility is why I think it managed to thrive and grow, uh, you know, for 500 years. Right. It's fabulous. So um, here's a, a a question that <laughs> I'm going to ask everyone because it affects everyone, but everyone differently. So how did your art and your work, how was it affected by the pandemic? Because, you know, what can you do? <laughs> you know? Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> it was, you know, so... I mean, you know, Charles, we, we, we were on a roll. We were, we were so busy performing. Um, you know, we just in 2019, 18, I can't remember. We, you know, we performed in London. We went to Mexico and we were looking forward to going back and doing more work in Mexico. Um, nice. 
And, you know, we were also in conversations about, um, you know, performing in France and doing something there. And then the pandemic hit and Sri Lanka too. Um, and the pandemic hit and even, you know, domestically, like all the shows got canceled. And um, the first couple of months, it was it was very disorienting. Mm. Um, and uh, And then I think, you know, again, naming my privilege, like I, I do, I work part time um, as an adjunct professor at Lincoln University. And, mm-hmm. and so I do want to name that, like, at least, you know, unlike other artists who didn't have an income stream other than the arts, um, I was able to support myself, right? And, and um, somehow I was also able to support my teacher, but also, you know, uh, during the pandemic is when I won Le- the Transformation Award from Liwei, which right. was amazing. So I did not have, um, you know, financial constraints, right? I do, I do want to name that. So that also allowed for me to really pause, mm. right? And say like, okay, what was I doing before? I mean, there. I think Hatria Dance Company prior to the pandemic um, and, and there's going to be a stark difference and, and the Hatria Dance Company now because um, I feel like the, you know, the last couple of years really uh, allowed, um, at least for me to like, I don't want to speak for Prerna, to reflect and, and find my purpose, um, to be more intentional in my work, um, to dive deeper. So um, even though the pandemic shut down so many doors, it also opened yes. so many yes. beautiful, um, you know, gates. Right? Um, I I uh, I was really worried about my teacher, and also, you know, for my own mental health and sanity. I started oh, yeah. talking to him regularly, right? And then, and then I said, "Oh, can we?" I I was like, you know, I I I do want to compensate you for your time which i knew they were struggling to so i wanted right. to help but I, I didn't want to be disrespectful and i said how about we you know like once a month once a week we touch base and and maybe i can read the scriptures because even though i'm assamese uh, much of the vocabulary and the text of hatria is drawn from brajapali which is like a language that is extinct right now. I mean, it's in the written form and it's wow. used for rituals, but then nobody speaks it, right? Um, and forever, like ever since I, you know, started practicing Hatria, uh, I would always have to go to these, you know, master artists to translate the text for me. Mm. And I was almost scared, like if I would have just sat and tried to read it and learned it i could have probably but a i didn't have the time b i was not confident um so i talked to my and whenever i was in india i was so busy you know learning new choreography documenting um and 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 just soaking up all the information making music i didn't have time to like sit down and do this other work and learn a language (laughs) and learn a language so i just thought like oh i i could rely on you know the monks and the other teachers um to interpret it for me so i just said you know maybe once a week we can sit and read the text you know you can listen to it and you can tell me what i'm reading because i wouldn't understand it started charles like literally once a week to like he said, okay, how about three times a week, right? Hey. <laughs> and then it became twice a day, right? And along the way, I started learning the songs. So I started, you know, I mean, revisiting and relearning some of the songs, which like I never really had a moment. I would, we started toward the, uh, you know, um, just before the pandemic, Rana and I did start uh, playing a little bit with the music of Hatria, like with live music. Mm. So I would sing and I do would do the percussion a little bit, but not like really. I mean, we were putting it out there to see how it would fit and if if people would appreciate it. Uh, but during the pandemic, I was really able to deepen my practice in in the music and the rhythm. And, and the philosophy, right? It really, truly became a way of life. So, um, so yeah, so, so I ended up buying a little tablet for my teacher 
and nice. uh, you know a good internet connection and and we uh so we meet every day we meet every day that is in beautiful the that's how i start my day um, and i sing to him and i read the scriptures Aww. and you know i i have access to the language now which is like you know i mean i think um uh, it's such a blessing so that is so beautiful yeah oh. Oh. <laughs> so yeah my pandemic journey has been you know that my pause has been one of meditation um of uh rejuvenation um you know repurposing my art um you know uh, a lot of meditation and intention and deepening of practice beautiful what was the first uh thing that you did once you could be more out in the world or is that something that you're still working on still working on you know um i did like recently uh i was commissioned to do this work for ssmf it's called it's it's a festival a media festival uh true pen um, it's okay. run by students and uh, it's SSMF and camera. I believe those two entities that did that do this uh, festival and they commissioned me to do a work on pause around pause. Right. Um, and it was, it was great. It was a 45 minute uh, uh, offering and I really tried to bring in everything that happened during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so um, I felt like most of my grounding, I spent a lot of time in the woods during the pandemic, okay. um, you know, um, in the, um, in Fairmount and Mr. Hicken and, and, uh, and I felt like trees were what really offered me the grounding and the support I needed because so there was so much of disruption, right. For everyone. Yes. And we were mourning from far, like for me, like we, I lost so many family members in the last three years and I haven't been able mm. to mourn in community mm. or, you know, not visit my parents for this long or be in community with the monks. You know, right. I've always gone home every year and this was really, really hard. So, um, you know, I really wanted to situate the work um, under a tree, right. To kind of um, symbolize that. And, we found this really amazing um, 120-year-old Katsura tree ancestor uh, wow. at the Morris Arboretum, right? And, and the whole performance was around the tree. And it was a streamed performance. So it was basically, there was no editing. We had to go from start to finish. It was shot by four cameras and edited live as I was wow. doing it. Um, and, you know, uh, I collaborated with uh, Egyptian-American poet and dancer, um, uh, Dunya Selim Herhur. And, uh, you know, so basically it was, uh, I, there were altars that were placed um, under the tree um, to symbolize the different stages of the pandemic. You know, it mm. was rest and rejuvenation and and also joy at noticing things that we did not notice or we didn't have time to notice during that, the yes, pandemic. That's real. Right. Mm -hmm. Nurturing. And then also like, you know, a, an altar for mourning and remembrance. Right. Um, so and uh, so there was uh, and the performance was, you know, song, poetry, dance, song, poetry, dance. And that's how it happened. Um and so that was that was essentially my first work. Well, I lied. There was also another piece I did <laughs> for live performance for AAI. You know, it, it was very interesting because initially I, I saw that a lot of my um, colleagues in the Indian dance um, space, and I don't know if, if that was happening elsewhere too, uh, really felt, I mean, as artists and performers, uh, you know, we are always driven by performances and we're driven and, and we feel like we need to occupy space all the time. Right. I mean, right. And, 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 and so many of my colleagues really took to the digital 
medium, you know, doing a lot of YouTube festivals mm-hmm. or, um, you know, putting out a lot of work on Instagram and, and virtual performances. And um, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. Like, I just Same. could not do it. And I was like, you know what? The universe wants us to pause. I'm going to pause. Right. And I'm going to think and I'm going to use this time to really, you know, hone my craft. Um, and, you know, if people forget me, they forget me. That's okay. But like, you know, this is what I need to do. I just couldn't be, I, I turned on so many, so many opportunities to perform online. I just could not do it. Um, so yeah, AAI, uh, no, sorry, it was, I can't even remember. I did do a performance for Papa. It was live at uh, the Asian Arts Initiative. So that was the first one. We were masked. Mm. And then the second was, you know, for, for camera, which was again, not, not a virtual performance, but like the team itself, we were all, it was a collective offering. We all worked together and then, you know, it became a film. So, um, and there was a discussion afterward, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I love that, that idea of like pausing. Cause that was, that was my takeaway, um, because, you know, we we had the bar and once that stopped and we were able to just sit and didn't have that constant need to go and do. And, you know, you were able to take stock in things that weren't working, things that you just do by habit that just don't really serve you, you know, and able to find a way to move forward in a in a different way hopefully a better way yeah so i like that idea of like pause and change and reflection mm-hmm. but also it was time to like resource map like you said right i mean the moment you like did not jump into that frenzy you know like a hamster on a wheel you could actually take stock of right. like honestly honoring your own body mm-hmm. um and your spirit and asking yourself like so many times you don't ask for consent from ourselves, what we want to do. Mm. And I think the pandemic taught me that, like, you know, what do I want to do? Right. Right. And what can I give myself permission to do? Um, And I think that was so powerful because that was the first time that I ever did that. And it brought so much clarity Mm -hmm. and also allowed me to become really aware of my own capacity. Ooh, there you go. Well, which brings me to, uh, I saw I saw this and I literally was like Kermit the Frog. I flailed my arms and screamed, "Yay!" Tell me about the Satria School of the Arts. Oh yes, Hatria oh, School of the Arts. I have to change Thank myself. You. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I mean, there have been so much. Uh, people have been asking me you know, when will you start teaching? And I teach. I don't know why people think that I don't teach. I, I, I've been involved, um, you know, through the Penn Museum, which again has been an amazing ally, uh, their international classroom. Um, and through Penn Museum, I've been going into communities, into schools, uh, public schools, and and also senior living centers, right? And bringing Hotria and movement and music um, and mindfulness practice. And, um I, I I never had, well, prior to the pandemic, I really did not have capacity to, you know, start a school, school, right? Where I could like do things regularly. Right. And um, because we were so busy traveling um, and performing. And um, my teacher has been, you know, saying like, what next? And he said, you know, you're ready. You should, you, you were ready 10 years ago. Right. And, why, you know, you need to really intentionally start this school. So it's going to be a collaborative effort. Um, and it is not just a dance school. It's, it's, it's not for dancers. I mean, everybody is welcome. It's not just for dancers is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, it's, it's for anybody who wants to practice it as a way of life. Mm. Um, there's going to be something for everybody. You know, uh, if somebody wants to learn the traditional music, you know, that we're going to be offering that. If somebody wants to just do it as as a movement for healing, it, there's opportunity for that. If you want, if somebody wants to take it up seriously, 
there's opportunity for that, right? Mm. Uh, we will be um, bringing in uh, master teachers also um, to teach the different components associated uh, with the uh, Hatra, the monastic tradition, which is, you know, mask making, um, percussion, uh, the music and songs, the dance, the stories, right? Everything. Um, of course, the emphasis is like, you know, we're going to, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to divide those classes and how we're going to get or depending on interest. Right. But we did, you know, kind of put out the word in the community saying we are coming and we will be there. And uh, it is going to be um, under the able guidance of, of my you know, one of my dear teachers, my beloved teacher, uh, Gubinda Kolita Bayan. And Gubinda Da is um, a celibate monk. He lives in the monastery, um, you know, a very revered person. Um, also really amazing because back in the day when, you know, they were not allowed to teach outside the monastery and not allowed to teach women in particular right. uh, he was almost excommunicated because he did that oh wow you know he brought the arts out so another act of resistance <laughs> yes yes um so you know i'm just so fortunate that he said he would be part of this and um you know that he would guide us through the process and we really looking at you know in terms of i do not like using this word because it's so overused in mm. academia but um really looking at honestly, decolonizing our practice um, mm. because there's so many like, you know, schools, right? right, right, uh, right. Where you get certificates after like you take an exam and then, and I think it's going to be more about the process and finding yourself in this journey um, and, and, you know, uh, really truly connecting with the tradition and, and, you know, investigating what it's like to be a tradition bearer, mm. right? More than like, oh, you know, I have a two-year certificate course in Hatria. Right. Um, so we're not going to go that route. Right. I love it. And uh, so this is open to... Anyone. No age limits or anything? No age limits Fabulous. to anyone. And no anyone. if someone were interested in becoming a part of this, where would they go? What would they? Um, so send us an email at, um, well, of course, you can find us on Instagram and on Facebook under uh, Hotria Dance Company. Um, Instagram handle is, I think, hotria.dance.company. Uh, or email us at hotria, which is S A T T R I Y A, dance, D A N C E, at gmail.com. Um, and then, you know, um, we will engage in conversations and see what is possible. Okay. I think we'll put the information in the uh, description of the episode so that people can Perfect. refer to it. Fabulous. Thank you. And, you know, my, my whole thing was like, Charles, really, I mean, there's so many virtual schools right now, and I'm really still wary about it. So I'm still meditating on, I mean, really, I want it to be, I want it to be accessible to all. And that's what I'm struggling. That's my own internal struggle, mm. right? Because I truly believe that, you know, dance, it's so hard. And I don't know how you think about this, but like, I, I feel like you cannot teach dance virtually. It's it is hard. hard. Right? I taught, I taught uh, a couple of master classes over the pandemic. And that was okay because it was just giving class. You know, I do than you do, you know? But I couldn't imagine having an actual class for a year or for a semester where you had to give feedback. How, how? <laughs> I spoke to students and teachers alike and everyone was just like, oh my God, <laughs> it's so hard. It is really hard. I mean, and so in terms of accessibility, because I really want to, want to honor that. So I did say that, you know, we will offer virtual classes. But my intention is like, you know, even if people sign up virtually, if you have already experienced the practice, I think, and if you are really, you know, um, um, if you really, really aspire to be a dancer, and we would include, you know, in our future Hot Dance Company production, some of these 
you know, learners would be part of that journey, right? right. And, and become part of the company. But to be truly able to, uh, you know, do that and to, to get the expertise, I think it's so important to be in person. So uh, I would be saying that, you know, at least once a month uh, for people to have to practice with the teacher physically. Uh, and Prerna is in India, so, you know, people in India can can kind of reach out to her. We are also willing to travel and, like, go to people um, if, you know, they can make, you know, if we can make that happen. If Fabulous. there's enough, um, if there is, like, you know, suppose there are, like, 10 students in Chicago, we're willing to fly there and, like, you know, once a month teach, you know, teach there and come back. Like, I think it's so important to have, um, because, yeah, how do you teach a tradition online? I have no idea. Um, so my heart is still on like mm. physical classes. Right. So Philadelphians, please, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're listening, um, you know, that's, 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 that's what, that's how I want to do it. Um, but then I also recognize and accept that, you know, it's, it's a digital world and, right. um, you know, we have to open up and make it accessible to all. I mean, I imagine it's got to be a little helpful because like it's difficult when you have your set methodology and then you try to like cram it into a virtual space. But if you know going in that you're crafting this to be virtual, you can at least weave different methodologies into the way that you do it, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. And I have taken a few like, you know, virtual, but just because I was thinking about this a lot, I've taken a few uh, virtual intensives and, and they've been okay. I mean, they've been engaging, but again, like you said, I I cannot think of it as like, you know, how do you do this long-term? Maybe it'll work out. I don't know. We'll see. Well, I think it'll work out because it has to (laughs) much like everything else. (laughs) It has to, so it's gonna. (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining us this has been wonderful thank you charles this was really a pleasure it's always such a joy and a blessing to be in the same space with you you too um so i'm going to include all of your uh information of the school and your social media and your website in the ep- in the details of this episode so that everyone can find you and and experience all the fabulous things that you have to offer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Dance Talk Radio, sponsored by PhiladelphiaDance.org. Please, if you love Philadelphia Dance, if you are a part of Philadelphia Dance, please consider being a member. Go to PhiladelphiaDance.org and click the membership button, and you can have access to all the resources that will be available to you as a member. Once again, my name is Charles Tyson Jr. You have a wonderful day. Thank you.